Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read beginning in verse 3 down to verse 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for this eight-week series that concludes today from the Beatitudes given in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, we have learned a lot about what you have to say in these very important words. And I pray, Lord, that it's been more than just information that we've packed away in the computers of our minds, stored off on a hard disk somewhere. I pray that it's become something that's impacting us every single day, that we're thinking about the Beatitudes and we're looking to put them into practice on a regular basis. Now, Lord, in this last uh, study from the Beatitudes, in this last of the eight Beatitudes, maybe the most difficult of all of them in the sense of the repercussions of living this way, but I pray, Lord God, that you'll help us to be men and women of courage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today we come to the final message in this Beatitude series that we've called Blessed. And I hope that you've been blessed by the messages about how Christ wants us to live, how he wants us to live in this world, and how it's so opposite of the way of the world and the way most people are taught how to live. All of these Beatitudes that we've been studying are contrary to the human thinking and the human experience in most circumstances. Yet all of them describe the work of Christ in the life of a believer. And so learning these and practicing these means becoming more like Jesus. We're all in a different place on this journey. We're all on a journey of discipleship. We're all moving from the moment we trusted in Jesus to becoming fully uh, devoted to Christ. We're all in that journey, and along that journey, we're at different stages on that journey. And my prayer is that as we have studied these Beatitudes, that we get a clearer picture of what the blessed life is to be, and that we'll understand what our goals should be, and that we'll even have a measure to be able to evaluate ourselves to see where we are along this journey. The first seven Beatitudes deal with a Christian's character and conduct, while this eighth one that we're going to study today deals with the reaction of others to the person who's living according to these Beatitudes. And the reaction occurs primarily because godly qualities and godly character are not welcomed in the world at large. Godly qualities and godly character are not welcomed in the world at large. If I were to put it simply this morning, when you do what is right 
you will inevitably be vilified, harassed, and persecuted just for doing what is right. That's the world we live in. And we really shouldn't be that surprised. Jesus said they hated me. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Uh, they persecuted me, even to the place of his crucifixion. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us. We're not better than our master. If our master is the one who has gone through these kinds of experiences, we shouldn't expect that we won't go through these kinds of experiences. Three times in these verses, verses 10 to 12, the word persecute or persecuted is used. The preceding seven beatitudes describe people directly, but this particular beatitude that's here in verse 10 describes them indirectly in terms of what happens to them. You notice again verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that verses 11 and 12, some people think that's an additional beatitude. I mean, after all, it starts with the same word as the previous eight, blessed are you. But I want you to notice the difference. In the previous eight, there are these parallel statements. Uh, there's the poor in the spirit, poor in spirit, and they have the kingdom of, of heaven. There's those who mourn, and then they're comforted. There's those who are hungry and thirsty, and they'll be filled. And there's these parallel statements. But when you get to verses 11 and 12, there aren't parallel statements as there had been in the previous eight verses. So what's the purpose of verses 11 and 12? Well, it's an expansion. It's an extension. It's an elaboration. It's an intensification. He wants you to understand what he means by persecution. He wants you to see what persecution may be like. He's also using verses 11 and 12 to transition into the rest of the sermon. But verses 11 and 12 are an extension or an expansion of verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Blessed are you when they revile you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then he tells you what to do in response. So those are elaborations. Those verses are elaboration or intensification or an expansion. When he talks here about persecution, he's talking about something that's physical talking about something that's done to you indeed. The, the word literally means to chase or to drive away or to pursue. The word revile is to reproach or to insult. The word literally means to cast in one's teeth. They're tearing you apart with their mouths. And then, if you will, the words that say that uh, in verse 11 that they'll speak falsely against you, it's the idea of slander. They'll say anything about you. It doesn't have to be true. Anything they can say, they'll say about you. They'll, they'll twist anything they need to twist in order to say what they want to say. So that when you put all of this together, this is what you need to know. When you pull all of this together, the persecution that we're talking about in verses 10, 11, and 12 extend to cover actions as well as words. Actions as well as words. There may be somebody who chases you and pursues you and wants to beat you. There may be somebody who's just using their tongues to lash you, to speak against you, to say all kind of evil against you, to slander you, and to express their hatred toward you. And so when you think of persecution, we can't just think in the terms of the physical abuse. We have to think of the mental and emotional abuse that occurs when somebody is 
persecuting us. Now, I just want us to take a moment in the introduction of this message, and I want you to think about persecution, and I want you to think about it being everywhere in this world. I went and got the statistics for 2021. 2021. The number 312 million, that's the number of Christians experiencing high levels of persecution and discrimination for their choice to follow Jesus. The number 5,898, that's the number of Christians that have been killed for faith-related reasons. The number 5,110 is the number of churches and other Christian buildings that were attacked. The number 4,765 is the number of believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. The number 3,829 is the number of Christians abducted for faith-related reasons. There is persecution in our world. Newsweek magazine reported in January 2018 that the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in history. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? You want to be saddened and inspired at the same time to read the story of famous Christians from the past who were martyred for their faith, and yet Newsweek magazine said that 2018 was the worst recorded year in any time in history. We don't think too much about these Christians because most of these that are suffering in the way that I'm talking about right this moment live on the other side of the earth. They live in places where we have never been and we can't even imagine what it's like living in those places. And the distance that we have to those Christians who are suffering serves as a sort of anesthetic for us. We're sort of numbed to it. We're sort of disinterested in it because they live so far away from us that we can't imagine what it would be like to have to experience what some of these are experiencing. But can I just tell you that persecution is happening in the United States of America as well. And I don't mean to frighten our young people or our children, but it may get worse. It may get worse as we move forward. I want to speak for a moment to every college student, to every teenager, to every young adult. Listen to me. At campuses throughout the country, outspoken Christians are regularly, regularly demeaned, debased, and targeted by professors and students simply for their beliefs. Academics, social groups, and college organizations regularly ridicule Christians, calling them hateful, bigoted, and privileged, among some other things that I won't use in a pulpit in a church service. I mean, when are we going to stop and realize that religious persecution is happening around us right now? When Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he meant it for those in the first century. He means it for those of us in the 21st century. You don't think it's happening? Ask Elaine and Jonathan Huguenin of Elaine Photography, who were fined by New Mexico courts, the New Mexico courts, for following their cherished biblical beliefs. 
Ask Crystal Dixon, who was fired from her interim post as Associate Vice President for Human Resources because she wrote an op-ed piece reflecting Christian values in the Toledo Free Press. Hmm. Free. Hmm. Cost her. Ask Aaron and Melissa Klein in Oregon who lost their family bakery because of their faith. Ask Randy and Trish McGath, who had, a, had to close their bakery as well in Indianapolis, Indiana, for similar reasons. Ask Baronel uh, Stutzman, the owner of Arlene's Flowers and Gifts, who finally retired after a lengthy lawsuit against her business, some seven or eight years of lawsuits against her business for her faith, because of what she believed, because of how she practiced her faith. Ask Richard and Betty Odgard, Mennonite owners of Gortz House, uh, Gortz House Gallery. That's German, so if I didn't say it right, forgive me. Gortz House Gallery in Des Moines, Iowa, who had to shut down part of their business. Ask Kevin O'Connor, owner of Memories Pizza in the small town of Walkerton, Indiana. Walkerton, Indiana is smaller than our beautiful town of Barbersville. He was targeted for his Christian beliefs. Ask the high school valedictorian who was threatened with jail, with jail, if Jesus wasn't removed from her graduation speech. Ask the senior adults who were told that they had to stop praying, listening to religious messages, or singing gospel songs at their activity center. Ask the pastor who was forbidden by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs to refer to Jesus during a Memorial Day service. Ask Pennsylvania State House of Representative Stephanie Borowitz, 2019, who mentioned the name of Jesus 13 times during the morning invocation at the State House, after which her prayer was labeled as blatantly Islamophobic, xenophobic, and discriminatory. Now, I can go on giving you these examples. Persecution is all around us, and there are many, dozens upon dozens of kinds of examples that I'm talking about right now in the United States of America where Christians are being targeted because of their faith, because of what they believe, because of how they practice following Jesus Christ. I thought it was interesting what some experts in this matter of persecution say about the six stages that you go through when you're dealing with persecution against Christians. I can't go through every aspect of these six, but I'm going to show you what these six are. The first stage involves attempts to stereotype a targeted Christian or group of Christians, to stereotype them. They are these kinds of people. The second stage involves justifying hatred of Christians who are seeking to obey Christ. They're portrayed as regressive troglodytes who are determined to resist progressive change. Progressive generally means evil change, sinful change. The third stage involves marginalizing Christians' roles in society. A man you see on the news every weekend, Chris Matthews of NBC News, indicated that conservative evangelical Christians have no place in American politics. This is what he wrote. These are his words. I quote them. 
If you're a politician and believe in God first, that's all good. Just don't run for government office, run for church office. I don't think our founding fathers would have seen it that way. Do you? The fourth stage involves criminalizing Christians, their churches, their businesses, and their educational institutions. The fifth stage involves persecuting Christians outright, forcing them to go against the biblical teachings of Christ. The general idea is to force a person or group to do things against their deeply rooted faith. And the sixth stage brings their martyrdom. You say, Pastor, you're trying to rile us up. No, I'm trying to help you to understand persecution may not be like it is on the other part, on the other side of the earth, like it is in other parts of the world, but the reality is it is increasing and it's growing every single day in America. We don't need less church. We need more gatherings of church. We don't need fewer group meetings. We need more group meetings. We don't need less people reading their Bibles. We need more people reading their Bibles. We don't need less encouragement of one another. We need more encouragement to one another. Jesus is the one who said at the end of these Beatitudes, after all of these things that are about us, about how we're supposed to behave and how our attitudes are supposed to be, he turns it around and says, now look, when you live this way, you should expect that what's going to come to you in reverse is you're going to receive persecution. You will stand out like a sore thumb. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that when I have a sore thumb, everything in my body is focused on that thumb. He said, you'll stand out like a sore thumb. And everybody, everybody will see you and know you and will dislike you in the world around us. Even people who used to have a measure of common sense lose their common sense in order to force Christians to do against what they know is right to do. So the question comes to us this morning, you know, what is our response to this supposed to be? You say, well, let's go get politically involved and let's go get in the fight and let's do those things. Well, before we do any of those things, let's do what God says to do first. Amen? Amen. Number one, we have to be prepared. I want you to notice again, if you will, for just a moment, verse 11. He said, blessed are you, and notice the next word, when, not if, not if, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He doesn't say if, he says when, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Jesus is writing these words to prepare us for what is inevitably coming just for trying to live and love like Jesus. Don't be surprised by it. Don't let it catch you off guard. Understand that many of the people around you who they see Christ, when they see Christ in you, will not like you. Please try to understand that. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Didn't say they might. It says they will suffer persecution. And we need to be prepared. We don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to assume everyone is going to like us. You want to go to college 
knowing that most of the professors, or at least many of them, and many of the students aren't going to like what you believe. They're not going to believe what you believe. They're going to think you are out of date. As a matter of fact, people hear me preach, and they say, you, you, sh you should have come along in a different generation. No, it's, it's not me that has changed or the Word of God that has changed. It's the society around us and the acceptance of that society around us that has changed. That's where the movement is taking place. Just to give you an illustration, one pastor described an experience he had a few years ago, and this is what he writes. I did a little cleaning in my office. I threw out some older books, discarded old files, and found a pile of notes that I had kept over the years. That pile, he said, was a reminder that I had had a disappointing week. It was the week of March the 25th. Someone phoned with a request to me uh, to meet me the next morning. And I, I, I can feel it in my body. Every preacher in this room can feel it. <clears throat> what do they want? He said, I want to discuss a couple of things with you. And then he says, I wrote on the note, oh boy, what have I done? I spent the rest of the day worrying about that meeting. A million different possibilities raced through my mind. Did I say something in my sermon? Did one of my kids do something at school? The next morning, I drove to breakfast, dreading the conversation. I ordered toast. He jokingly says, I wasn't about to waste money on a reprimand. My friend chatted aimlessly while I waited for the bomb to drop. I was reminded again that day of an important truth. You can't please everybody. He goes on to quote, this pastor does, goes on to quote Matthew 5, 10 to 12, and he writes, Jesus was a realist. So he told his followers that if they followed him, many would not approve of their actions and decisions. Many would not approve. So if you're a personality like mine who is too much of a people pleaser, you want people to like you. But we have to be prepared. Not everybody is going to like us. He continued, on the Sunday following that event, I received a card from Mary Ellen Cook, a retired pastor's wife. It said, Tony, you cannot please everyone, and even if you could, some of us would, be deep, some of us would deeply resent you pleasing them. <laughs> so it's sort of caught between a rock and a hard place, you know. But at the same time, what she was saying was accurate. You can't please everyone, and if that's your goal in life is to be happy with everybody and go along with everybody and do what everybody else wants you to do and not say anything, keep your faith to yourself and live it all to yourself, hey, you can do that. You can't be a very good Christian and do that, but you can do that. If you want to get along and avoid persecution, the formula is pretty simple. Don't live too much like Christ. Approve the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Laugh at, what the world's laugh at the world's crude humor. Immerse yourself in the world's vile entertainment. Smile when God is mocked. Act as if all religions converge at the same destination. Don't mention hell. Make no judgments about right and wrong. Make no statements about the moral issues of the day. Don't share your faith. Whatever you do, don't share your faith. 
We got that one down pretty well, don't we? Don't let anyone see the Beatitudes at work in your life. Following the basic formula, this basic formula, and it will be smooth sailing and basically pain-free. But how is that being the salt and the light of the earth? Can you answer that question for me? Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't hide that light. He says in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. You understand that not everybody's going to approve, and you have to be prepared. I wish we prepared our young people far better than we do for what they're going to have to deal with and what they're going to face when they go into the educational system and when they go into the real world. They're not going to be liked by everybody, and a lot of people are going to consider them to be out of date and out of touch. You're still living by those morals from uh, the first century? I mean, you know, don't you understand this is a progressive society? You've got to come along to get along with people. Our world becomes increasingly more secular every day. It becomes increasingly more hostile towards Christians that live out their faith every single day. Christians who live by absolute biblical values and with the Spirit of Christ make a sinful society around them painfully uncomfortable. Your presence if you're living for Jesus Christ without you even saying a word should make some people extremely uncomfortable. Not because of you, but because of the Christ that you follow. I want you to turn in your Bible with me. Keep your place here in Matthew 5, but I want you to turn in your Bible with me back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Be prepared. That's what we're talking about. Be prepared. Are you with me? Be prepared. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Have you ever seen narcissism at a higher level than today? Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal. If you watch the brutality in the streets of America, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Please, will you listen to the last words? And from such people, hang out. Is that what it says? And from such people, turn away. There's a time when you have to walk away. You have to understand they're not going to like you and they're not going to approve. The longer you stand there and you argue with them, the worse it gets. I have yet to meet somebody argued into the faith. 
I have met many people who've come to Jesus whom the Lord opened their hearts. But I have seen, I, I haven't seen anyone who was argued into the faith. We have to be prepared. We have to be prepared. And when we find ourselves in a situation where it's difficult and it's hard, it may be that what you have to do is just turn and you have to walk away. Number two, we have to be pure. Not only be prepared, we have to be pure. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, notice what he says here. Blessed are those who are persecuted, here come the words, for righteousness' sake. In verse 11, he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Please note what Jesus does not say here. He does not say that we should be persecuted for our stubbornness, our shamefulness, or our stupidity. Should I repeat that one for you? He does not say that we should be persecuted for our stubbornness, our shamefulness, or our stupidity. He says, for righteousness' sake, which is the equivalent of saying, for my sake. If persecution is to come, it must come because we are being like Jesus. And we've got this attitude that Jesus never rebuked anybody. He rebuked the religious leaders repeatedly. He drove the money changers out of the temple. Yes, Jesus reached out to those who were fallen and broken, but Jesus never ignored their sins. The woman at the well, he said, oh, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. That's not the way to win friends and influence people. Unless you're trying to influence them for eternity, to change their eternal destiny. I, I don't know how many of you in the room will remember a whole lot about Michael Jordan, but you might remember the commercials, the Gatorade commercials that were made about him. They were back in the early 90s. They refreshed that same commercial, the Gatorade commercial with Michael Jordan in it in 2016. The only reason why I know about Michael Jordan is because when my son was a teenager, he's now in his early 40s, but when he was a teenager, he loved to watch Michael Jordan play basketball. If the Chicago Bulls were playing basketball on TV, it was on our TV, which, meant, which, which means basically we didn't see anything else but Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, the Chicago Bulls winning ball games and championships. What, six, five or six championships that they won? And you have to admit, uh, Michael Jordan could do some un incredible things. You could, with a jump shot, he would hang in the air, and at the very last second before he'd started down to put his feet back on the ground, he'd shoot the ball and it would swish through the basket. Never touch the rim, just right through the basket. Uh, you could see him as he's running down the court dribbling the ball and he gets to a certain spot and I don't know how he does it but he just floats he just floats until he dunks the ball how, how, how do you do that I can't even get off the ground where I'm standing now <laughs> he floats for these, these long segments of, of time and he dunks the ball or the one that I will never forget I saw it, I'll never forget it 
He's passing under the basket. He's got the ball in the right hand. He's going to do a layup, and he decides while he's hanging in the air, he's not going to lay it up with his right hand. He shifts it to his left hand, and he does a reverse layup on the other side of the basket. Who can do that stuff? Now, my eight-year-old grandson is a LeBron James fan. I don't even know who LeBron James is. But he likes to talk about LeBron James. That's, that's who he wants to watch. My son called me this past week. They don't, have, they don't have cable TV. They don't watch very much TV, which is not a bad idea. <laughs> but he said, Daddy, could I borrow your subscription so that we could watch the game? <laughs> Andrew wants to watch the game. Yeah, you can have it. Here's my password. Please don't give that to anybody else. <laughs> you remember the Gatorade commercial with Michael Jordan in it? There's a bunch of kids that are playing basketball. They're all trying to copy Michael Jordan to do the same kind of things that Michael Jordan. And in between, there's the, these scenes of Michael Jordan doing these incredible things that he could do. And in the background, there's the song that says, I want to be like Mike. 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 Interesting, the, co the composer of that catchy tune used, the used in the commercial is a man by the name of Ira Ant Antelis. He's also the man who wrote the jingle for McDonald's. See, I, there's a double reason why I like him. <laughs> that jingle was, I'm loving it. But according to Antelis, the, the song started because Gatorade bought ad space without coming up with a definitive concept for a, for a commercial first. Their original idea was to air footage of Michael Jordan set to the tune of I Want to Be Like You from the Disney movie, The Jungle Book. However, negotiations for rights to the song broke down and it forced Gatorade to go back to the drawing board and come up with a new idea. And Tellus said they literally bought airtime for the following Monday that they wanted to air this commercial thinking that they had, I Want to Be Like You. With a deadline looming, Gatorade was left with the task of trying to come up with a new song in just a few days, and they asked several companies to create one of them. And tell us his company won the right to be the feature in the commercial after creating, now listen, after creating the song, Be Like Mike, in 15 minutes. Creating the song, Be Like Mike, in 15 minutes. But now listen. Being like Jesus is going to take longer than 15 minutes. And our song should be, I want to be like Jesus, not like Mike. I want to be like Jesus. I want to live and love like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. We've got to understand that we've got to be prepared. Persecution is coming, and the persecution should come because we are pure for righteousness' sake. Please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 4. Notice what it says. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now listen to these coming phrases. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. 
Now listen. But let none of you, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in others' matters. And I'm going to stop here because it's just a place where I want to stop, even though it's not necessarily a part of the message. You see the word busybody? (laughs) You see the word busybody? The Greek word literally means an agitator. An agitator. Can I just tell you that we have very little use anymore for social media at our house. I don't post anything on social media. If you're trying to communicate with me through social media, I won't see it. Please don't do that. Call me, text me, call the office. I don't post on social media anymore. I I like uh, pictures. I like birthdays. I like anniversaries. I like vacation pictures. I I like positive quotes. I like uplifting things. But in social media, whether it's Twitter or it's Facebook or it's the others that are out there, whether it's video or it's type messages, there are plenty of agitators. They make statements in order to draw you into a discussion that ends up being a debate. They try to prick you and make you just enough to think about what they're saying, to want to enter into it. And if you follow some of those things far enough down, which I have done, which is why I don't do it anymore, you follow it, you see the anger start to rise up. Hey, Christians are not supposed to be agitators. Get off social media if that's what you do. Amen. Get off social media if that's what you want to do. I want to bring people into a debate. Listen, you remember the days when we didn't have to listen to everybody else's opinion on every single thing that was happening? What a blessed day that was. Now we have people who know nothing about anything who think they know everything about everything. I've gone to preaching and I've stopped to persecution. You say, well, you just persecuted me, preacher. Well, you needed it. <laughs> Agitators, be prepared, be pure. Number three, be polite. You say, what? Yeah, be polite. First of all, remember the true source of all persecution. You know who it is? It's Satan. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do you know who's behind the persecution? It's really not the person standing in your presence that's really the one who's causing it. It's Satan himself behind it. It's the demonic powers of evil. Just stop and think about the story of Job. Job's story wasn't necessarily about persecution, But think who was behind the suffering that Job had to endure. Nothing could have happened apart from God allowing it to happen, but who was it that came to present himself before God and say, look, put him in my hands. Let me see what I can do with him. Satan is the one who is at work in the background. Remember the true source of persecution. And secondly, refuse to retaliate when persecuted. Be polite. Refuse to retaliate. Listen to Romans chapter 12. Beloved, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. 
For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen? And if you want to understand what he's talking about, look at Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Be polite. Be polite. It's not easy. I haven't uh, mastered this yet. Have you? You have? I haven't mastered this yet. I'm still in the process of learning how to do this. And sometimes my emotions boil up and boil over just like yours do. I may be at a different place on this journey of discipleship than you are, but all of us are on this discipleship journey where we learn that when we're being attacked because of what we believe, not for our stupidity, but because of our faith, because of the way we love Jesus, because of what we believe, that we don't return in kind what they dish out. The Christians in Pakistan comprise about 2.5% of the total population. Pakistan is an Islamic nation. That means that 97% of Pakistanis are Muslims. The Reverend Rumel Shah, who's a Christian leader in the northern city of Peshawar, he used to give reports on the government-endorsed social and economic suffocation of the Christian community. Pakistan's anti-blasphemy laws, he says, pose a constant threat for Christians. In addition, Rumel Shah said that in his province alone, his province alone, Peshawar, local mobs publicly urinated on Bibles and forced churches to close. So what do you do? He said, in spite of these acts of hatred toward Christians, he said he works for better relationships with his Muslim neighbors. He views the persecution as an opportunity to display Christ's love to others, even militant Muslims. And then he finishes by saying this. He summarizes how his church responds to persecution. Are you ready? Be polite. Here it is. We clean the wounds of those who hate us and those who would kill us. We clean the wounds of those who hate us and those who would kill us. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us, not like they have done unto us. Be polite. And I want to finish by saying be positive. Be positive. Why? Why should I be positive? Isn't that what he says back here in Matthew chapter 5? Did you read those words? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You, you, you said rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I mean, how in the world could we ever rejoice and be exceedingly glad? Well, first of all, Christ is being seen in you. That's why you're being persecuted because they're seeing Christ in you. Second of all, we can be positive because it's only temporary. There's going to be a day when we're delivered out of this world, and Paul talks about the light affliction, which is but for a moment. A third reason we can be positive is because we're going to be rewarded. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And may I say that ultimately through all of it, God is shaping you for heaven. God is shaping you for heaven. I'm going to close with this story. It comes from Billy Graham. He used to tell the story about a friend who lost his job, his money, his wife, and his home 
But in spite of all of that, he held on to his faith. He was like Job. No matter what happens to me, I will not stop believing God. One day, this man who had lost everything stopped to watch men that were doing work on a huge church, and one of them was chiseling a triangular piece of stone. So he asked the question, what are you doing with that? And the workman responded, see that little opening up there near the spire? Well, I'm shaping this down here so it will fit up there. Billy Graham said tears began to fill his friend's eyes as he walked away because he knew that God had spoken to him through that little experience. He said, I now know that God is shaping me down here so that I'll fit up there. Now look, when I say fit up there, you only get in there because of Jesus Christ. You only get in there because you've trusted him as your Savior. But what is he doing? All the time he's shaping us and he's fitting us for that place that one day we will live, that place called heaven. I want to put a quote on the screen. It comes from Justice Antonin Scalia. As you can see, he died in 2016. I want you to listen to what he said. God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools and he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. You got up this morning and you came to church and a lot of people looked at you and they said, are you crazy? You have got to be a nut. That's how they look at you. But we know that the cross of Jesus is the power of God to salvation. We know that the gathering of believers is the gathering of the family of God to worship God, to sing his praises, to listen to his word taught, to encourage one another, to fellowship with one another so that we can go back and live this week in a way that pleases God. And we know that if we follow Jesus faithfully, there will be persecution. You could lose your job. They may pass over you for the next advancement in the company because you no longer fit the kind of mold they want who thinks the way they think and believes what they believe. Are you willing to live out the Beatitudes of Christ, to live in love like Jesus and stand on the truth even if it costs you in the process.